The Village Church has always been a generous church. And ever since I came here some dozen years ago, um, there have been generous people that have been a part of this church. Uh, we, we've seen seasons where, where that generosity has just sort of felt overwhelming. We've seen seasons where, where just we've struggled through particular things. But, but God, through his generosity and through the generosity of people, have supplied the needs of the people in this church and the things that God has called us to see together. It's always been a generous church. And I want to say thank you for being a generous church. You know, sometimes when other pastors ask you about, about giving at your church and things like that and how you do your budget, you know, there's, there's numbers or there's averages and church organizations, you know, they, they pinpoint some of these things. And we've always been above average in these things. We've always done well in these things. And other pastors are, are sort of envious, to be honest, about, about some of the ways that our church has been generous over the years. And, and in this past season, we've, we've seen a, a particular kind of generosity in the life of the village church. And it's been a beautiful thing. In the midst of a season where uh, we were all kind of locked down and we went through quarantine and a number of the people in our church could not work and could not go to work and some of them lost their jobs and they lost major parts of their income. And, and this church through that season managed by the grace of God and through the generosity of the people of God that are here to, to maintain the, the, the budget that we have to operate as a church and all the things that we do. And at the same time gave tens of thousands of dollars to care for fellow village partners that were in need in that season. It's just been a beautiful thing to watch as one of your pastors. And it seems to me that there may be a sign or signs that, that sort of that time of, of need may be coming again. Seems like the economy is fractured. Seems like inflation is on its way. Seems like we're passing um, in, in our government just, just stimulus things that are, are billions and trillions of dollars. And we're wondering how that is all going to shake out. And a lot of experts say it's going to shake out in, in some really high inflation and some tough days ahead. And maybe that's the case. But even if it is, I believe that God will provide for his people. And God will use his people to provide for his people. There are a few principles here on collective Christian generosity this morning in our passage in Acts chapter 4 that will, will help us in the days ahead to, to continue to be a church that's alive, alive with a, the Spirit of God indwelling us and enabling us for the things that he has for us. And I think we find one of these first principles starting in verse 32 where it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. I think we see here that collective Christian generosity is fueled by gospel unity. Collective Christian generosity, when we are generous together as a people, that is fueled by our unity in the gospel. See, there is a Christian philosophy that says the reason why more of God's people don't give more of what they have is because they need more teaching on money. They need more sermons on money. They need more sermon series on money. They need to talk about money more. Jesus talked a lot about money. They need another course from Dave Ramsey or Ron Blue or Crown Ministries. They need more teaching on money. Now... Now, there is some truth to this, and I want to say, especially to a younger generation. If you're a part of a younger generation, you're, you're under 30 years old, 
I think that's younger for me now. <laughs> if you're under 30 years old, especially if you're a young adult, you're a college student, maybe you haven't seen some of these things modeled to you from your parents and your grandparents. My, my generation saw a lot of these things modeled to us by our parents and our grandparents, and, and we were able just to see them and to emulate some of them. And I think there's an entire generation of young Christian people that don't know what it means to, to give generously. But the more pressing reality is not that Christians need more teaching on, on biblical principles on giving, as good as that is. Like, I would commend those things to you. I've been through Crown Ministries, and I know people at Ron Blue, and I've been through the Dave Ramsey course, and we taught the Dave Ramsey course at our church, and we may again. Like, we think those things are good things, but, but the reality is that Christians don't need more teaching on, on biblical principles on money. I think the more pressing reality is that Christians need more teaching on the truth of the gospel and its implications in all of their life. Like, that's what we need. Christian generosity is not ultimately fueled by a greater emphasis on teaching on money. It's fueled by a greater emphasis on teaching on the gospel. And I hope by the grace of God, this is one of the signs that, one of the reasons why this is a generous church. No matter who's teaching, whether whoever stands behind this pulpit on a Sunday, your pastors, I, I hope and I pray, I have taught you well and, and centered us on the truth of the gospel. And I hope and pray that that's one of the reasons we have been a a generous church. And you can expect us to continue to do our best to be as gospel-centered as we can be. And I know that you will be as generous as you can be. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This is what they were emphasizing, the, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. They're, they're gospel-centered in what they're instructing their people about, and their people have this generosity that flows out of it. And the question might be, why? Why would a greater emphasis on the gospel in our teaching result in greater generosity? I think in the end, one of the reasons is there's only two motivations to Christian generosity. There's guilt and there's gospel. There's guilt and then there's gospel. Listen to me. Even if we get the best teaching, even if we've had the best teaching on, on biblical stewardship and money, the best principles on how to handle our money as Christians... It may not change anything unless our hearts are changed by the truth and the realities of the gospel. Unless we see that everything that we've been given, starting with our salvation, has been given to us as a free gift by God. Otherwise, we'll just still be giving and going through the religious motions. Maybe because it's motivated by guilt. See, guilt gives because it has to. Gospel gives because it wants to. Right? Guilt gives because... It gives just enough to get by. Gospel giving gives, gives so much and, and, and still just has just enough to get by. Guilt gives to impress others. Gospel gives because we've been impressed by God himself. This, these are the differences between giving in those ways. And gospel-centered people give because they want to. They give as much as they can, and they give because they've been impressed by God to do so. And when you and I are transformed by the realities of the gospel ourselves personally— then we can begin to be part of God's collective body, his collective people, his church, and collectively, corporately then, as, as we personally have been transformed by these things, we can become a collectively generous group of people because our lives are grounded in the realities of the gospel and that affects every area of our life, including our generosity. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. One heart and soul. 
I think the one heart shows us that they had a friendship in the gospel. They gave to each other because they were friends in the gospel. They were gospel friends. They had gospel friendships with these people. Maybe you have some of these kinds of friendships. I know that we do. Dean and I would say maybe we have five of those friendships that we can really count on our hands. They're they're our best friends in life for all kinds of other reasons, but it's also grounded in the realities of the gospel. We have friendships that are grounded in the gospel. Friends who are like family to us and who are church family to us, and it's grounded in the truth of the gospel. We call those friends framry, right? (laughs) Friends and family. Can we repeat that together? Framry. Come on, do it again. See, this was, I was thinking, could I convince you to repeat that with me this morning? And some of you did. It's great. Family, right? Friends and family. <laughs> These are the kinds of friends where we say, like, hey, what's mine is yours. And I don't really mean it. Like, I have a few friends in life where, like, literally what's mine is theirs. If they needed something from me, I would do what I had to do today to go to where they were, to write the check I needed to write, whatever. And they would do the same for me. I know it to be true. What's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. And we say it to each other. Could you imagine what it would look like if a whole, like if a church was filled with people that, that felt like the people around us were like those five people that I can count on my hands? Like if we were looking at each other and we felt like we had that kind of relationship with each other where, where you're one of, the, one of my five people and what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. Like, can you imagine what a church like that would look like? They had one heart. They were, they had a gospel friendship. But it also said that they had one soul. They were one in soul. I believe it shows us that they only had a gospel friendship. They had a gospel partnership in the mission of the gospel. Right? They gave to each other because they were on mission for the sake of the gospel. It wasn't just that they were friends, like they enjoyed a friendship relationship. They had something they were doing together. They were trying to grow and multiply disciples. And in our context, who are delighting in Jesus and declaring the good news about Jesus and displaying the life of Jesus. They were about something together not just hanging out together. And they gave to each other because they were on mission to, together. You know, the Village Church, this, um, this works uh, out in, in what we call partnership, and I know some of you know that. And it was just interesting, as I was, I was considering these things from this passage this week, I just made a little slide of our four different types of partnership, and some of you are new partners, and some of you are awaiting our partnership class, and some of you have been partners for years, and, and you know how these things work out that we have a theological partnership first and foremost that's, that's centered on the truth of the gospel. We also have a philosophical or a missional partnership that, that's centered on these realities that we do want to grow and multiply disciples who are delighting in Jesus and declaring the good news about Jesus and displaying the life of Jesus. And we have a relational partnership as well that we want to be involved and connected to each other's lives, and we want to share in these things in this way. And, and then lastly, we have a material partnership that we say, as partners at this church, we're all in with all that we have, including our financial resources and the things that God blesses us with. We're in to help each other, and we're in to contribute to the mission we have together. And it's just beautiful how these things have lined up with our pastors this morning. This is a picture of the early church, and... and I guess I'm glad to say this morning, I think this is the picture of what we're after in the partnership that we're after together at the Village Church. I think we will know that we have a real gospel friendship and we are on real gospel mission when we see real gospel generosity among us. I mean, their collective generosity was one of the greatest examples that the gospel had taken root among them, right? 
I mean, this, this, I believe, was the great grace that was upon them all. It says, and great grace was upon them all. This whole section's about their generosity. I think the grace was that they, they had the grace to be generous with each other. They had the grace to, to not see the things that they owned as only theirs, but to be shared with and given to others for the sake of, of the continued mission of the gospel and their friendship in the gospel. I know some of you are thinking right now, you know, Matt, I know, I, I hear what you're saying about like, what's mine is yours, what's yours is mine, and like, it, not seeing what I have is just mine, but like, I've been working hard for that, you know? Like, I, I know it's all of grace, but man, I've been grinding, you know, to get the things that I have. I know. Some of you might say, well, I read Proverbs, and I, and I know it says some things about, like, there are, there, there's the way of the wise, and it leads to a certain kind of life, and there's a way of the diligent and prudent, it leads to a certain kind of life. There's also the way of the foolish and the lazy, and it leads to another kind of life. And that, that's not what we're talking about this morning. We're not talking about helping to come alongside other, you know, lazy, foolish, professing Christians. Like, that's not what we're talking about. And if there were lazy, foolish, professing Christians in, the, in our midst, we would, we would sit down and instruct them and care for them and explain the way more perfectly to them as the Bible shows us that if we don't, we don't work, we don't eat, Paul says to the Thessalonians, I believe it is. Like, we work hard as Christians. We should. We should be the hardest workers in our company. We should, we should be the best examples as employees. Like, we should work hard for the, and, and, and trust God to provide for us through our work. We're not talking about those kinds of things. We're talking about entrusting uh, and, and, and what we have to people that, that are lazy or foolish. We're talking about helping other people that are working hard that find themselves in a hard way. That's what we're talking about this morning. It was the preaching of the gospel, not the preaching of sermons on money, I believe, that motivated them. And this makes for a sense for a group of people united around the gospel. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, a very wealthy church, in 2 Corinthians 9, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. He's writing to them saying, there's another church that needs help. They're in a bad way. And they're going to glorify God because you're going to give a gift that helps them. And where does that gift come from? It comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. And the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. What was the grace of God upon the Corinthian church? That they would see the things that they have as a gift of God that they could share with other Christians. Why? Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. It's all rooted in the reality that God first gave himself to us and for us in the person of Jesus Christ. So the question for us this morning is, have our hearts been radically transformed by the truth of the gospel? in such a way that it impacts every area of our life, including our generosity? That's a hard question. <laughs> I wrestle with that question myself. Maybe you do too. I want to be more generous. I, I believe you do too. But what exactly did this kind of gospel-empowered generosity look like? We already saw in verse 32 that it said, and no one said that anything of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. But now as we move on to verse 34 and 35, it says, there was not a needy person among them. That's what it looked like. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And the first thing we see is a joyful willingness to share what we have. 
a joyful willingness to share what we have. Listen to me. No one in that church was forced to sell anything that they had. No one in that church sold anything that they had under compulsion from the apostles. No one in that church sold what they had because there was a you know, five-week teaching series on money and they felt pressured every week at the end. That's not what happened. There was a joyful willingness to share what they had. They were willing to share it with others because they saw it as a gift from God in the first place. And secondly, there was a joyful willingness, listen to me, to trust their leaders to know what the greatest needs were. Like when they were willing to use their assets, when they were willing to use their resources to bless others in their church, you know, they might have also believed that they were the best judges of what the greatest needs were. And, and I get that. In a season where we've maybe had a little bit more and we had some margin, like it's, it's really tempting to think, well, I've got this little margin and, and I got kind of this little extra thing and, and I could give that over here because I'm really good at discerning what those needs are. And, and, and you are, and I know you all support missionaries and nonprofit organizations. I think that's beautiful and wonderful. Continue to do that. But in the midst of the church, sometimes the temptation is like, I, I know what those needs are. And, and this example of the early church, they trusted their leaders, they happen to be apostles, so they're pretty trustworthy, to distribute those needs, to distribute those resources to the needs that they knew people had. Right now there's a cool thing happening in our church. There's a family that, that has a car, you know, and, and they have another car now, and they don't need the car anymore, and they can actually get a few thousand dollars for their car, and a few thousand dollars, a few thousand dollars, I think it's probably put that as a down payment or use it for something else in life or stick it, you know, I don't know, buy some Bitcoin, I don't know, whatever, whatever you want to do. You know, but, but that's not what they're doing because they just feel like we have this car and we just think we should, we should give it to someone who needs a car. And guess what? There's a couple of families in our church that need a car. So I think they're going to Rochambeau over, you know, and it's just going to find out. I'm kidding. <laughs> the elders in our church will determine, like, who has the greatest need and how we can help with that. And if there are other needs, then, then we can meet those needs as well. Your pastors, you know, are connected with our partners on a regular basis, and we know the needs that are in this church, and there are needs in this church. And we thank you for so long. You've really trusted us to, to discern how we meet those needs, and we feel like a joyful partnership with you in that. And we see that happening here. Luke actually gives us a, a personalized example of what this looks like. Look at verse 36. He says, Then Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas had a joyful willingness to share what was his, and he had a joyful willingness to trust his leaders. That second part is hard, I know, because, because it's that kind of the last part of control. And, and don't we struggle with this with our resources? Like we earn things and then like we get, we get income from, from, from our work and we earn that income and we have it and now we feel like it's ours. And then to give it away just feels like, I'm, oh, I'm losing control. And so if you sold something and you set it apart, I mean, you deciding what the greatest need is for the people in your church sometimes can just be that last little bit of like, oh, but this is mine and I'm controlling what happens with it. And I think God wants us to just be like, yeah, I'll do that, you know. And I think in the local church, the way God does that is, is through the pastors of the church, you know. I know I say that as one of the pastors. I, I think I can speak for the pastors and say that I think our pastors do this well. So Barnabas had a willingness to share, a joyful trust in his leaders, 
and, and, and he gives this field, this field that produces a crop, this thing that produces ongoing income. Like think about a home that you own free and clear that you just get to rent out on VRBO or on a monthly basis and it's just the house is paid off and it's cash in your pocket and it's coming on a monthly basis, passive income. Isn't that what we're all after, right? This is what Barnabas has. Got a little passive income going. And he decides he doesn't need it all. And it's interesting when you think about Barnabas and us. It says that Barnabas was a Levite, which means he was highly educated and he was wealthy. And that is most of us. Most of us are, are very highly educated people in this area, and, and we, we are wealthy compared to most. It says he was a native of Cyprus. He lived in a very prominent place. He, he was probably a prominent Jew that never made it down to Jerusalem per se, but he kind of had his station in Cyprus. And, and it was a very prominent place. Like people wanted to live there. It's a beautiful, wonderful place to be. And his name was the son of encouragement. Actually, I think it tells us the encouragement that most likely came through his life, most often came through his generosity. He wasn't just encouraging with his words. He was encouraging with his resources. That's how we breathe courage and life into the people in the church. And it's just interesting. Most of us are highly educated, wealthy people compared to most who live in a prominent place. And so I think as we look at Barnabas' life, there's a few challenges for us. I mean, wealthy, highly educated people tend to be the least generous. A 2020 study from Christianity Today said that households that make more than $75,000, guess what? They're the least charitable. They're the least charitable. People that make more money are, are, are less charitable, by and large. And I think most of us probably qualify for this, living in Orange County. Secondly, people that live in prominent places tend to be the least generous. Least generous. Not just people that, that make more money tend to be less generous. People that live in prominent places tend to be less generous. Look at this Barna study that's cited in the Christianity Today article from last year. It says, where in the U.S. are the people most generous? Based on stereotypes, one might be tempted to think the South because of its hospitality culture. Or maybe the West Coast with its activist streak. Is that what we are? I, can, I think so, unfortunately. Or perhaps the Northeast because of their old money. However, according to a study by the Barna Research Group in 2019, the three most charitable cities in America are all in Idaho. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, it makes sense because it's 2019. That's when everyone started moving to Idaho, right? So, like, this totally makes sense, right? They're all in Idaho. Puckatella, you know, Idaho Falls and Jackson. Like, these, this, is the, this, is, this is where people are generous, Christians in these cities, on average, give $17,977 to charity annually. Now look at that number and think about that for a minute. Idaho. Gosh darn it, man. Idaho. And most of our encouragement comes through things like Instagram and words of encouragement. And I'm going to tap someone's thing twice and like it. I'm going to send them a word of encouragement and... They don't need a direct message. They need a direct deposit, right, more of the time, right? It's like they need you to help them, you know. They need help. So here we are, right, Barnabas. He's, he's educated. He's wealthy. He lives in a prominent place. But his nickname is the son of encouragement, probably because that encouragement, as I said, comes through his financial generosity. Let's come back to this passage. Many highly educated, wealthy, prominent Christians in Jerusalem, listen, they were willing to share what they had. And Barnabas is just one example. There are a lot of Christians that were, like in our church, willing to share what they have. 
but not all of them. <laughs> right? and, and, and they weren't all doing it for the right reasons, which we'll see in the next few verses. Look at verse, verses 1 and 2, chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> like, what's wrong with if I have that passive income property in that place that's paid for, and it's just generating my income? And like, what's wrong with like selling it and giving a portion of it, and then keeping a portion of it? Like, I, I could do that. Like, babe, we could, if we sold the place in Vail or the one in Manhattan, like, it doesn't matter which one it is. Like, we could, we could do the same thing. So, like, what, what does it matter, right? If, why are you laughing? You know, I mean, you don't know me. You don't know what's going on. You don't know. You know, so, like, I'll say, we sell our Vail place, right? And we give part of the proceeds to the church and we keep part of ourselves, you know, to buy another place to reinvest somewhere. Like, what, what, what's wrong with that? Well, Peter knows there's nothing wrong with that. And Luke will, knows we'll be asking the question, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with keeping some of the proceeds for yourself? <laughs> you earned it, you know, and, and you've given part of it. Like, what's wrong with that? And so Luke shows us how Peter responds. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of that land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. As Luke gives us the answer to what is going on here with Ananias and Sapphira, I believe we get also the second principle on collective Christian generosity. And I think it's this, that collective Christian generosity is sustained by integrity. It's sustained by integrity, the integrity that you and I ha would have with God and with ourselves and with one another. Luke tells us that he kept back part of the proceeds. That word kept back literally means it was misappropriated, or we could, be, we could translate it, it was embezzled, that he embezzled the money. And now we're asking the question, how do you embezzle your own money? <laughs> I think what most likely is happening here, and this is what many commentators think, is that Ananias and Sapphira had likely already made a financial agreement. They made a financial agreement with God and with themselves and with their church. And like many couples in this church, they probably went home one day after church and they heard about needs that were in their church or they saw needs that were in their church. And they said, hey, remember we had that field, that little passive income thing going over there? We don't need all of it, so let's, maybe we could sell that. And so they decided, yeah, we're going to sell that field. And they prayed it over. And they agreed with each other as husband and wife. We're selling the field and we're giving it all. And they likely had met with the apostles and they had come to some kind of agreement. Said, we're selling the field and we're giving it all. So they're in agreement with God and with themselves and with their church leadership. And they've made the agreement. And so most likely the sin of Ananias and Sapphira is not that they didn't give all the proceeds when they sold the property. You can sell something and not give it all. <laughs> There's no compulsion here. It was that they lied about it. They lied to God and they lied to themselves and they lied to the church because they'd already made the commitment. And in so doing, I believe what this passage is show, showing us is that they robbed God of what they had committed to God. And they robbed themselves of the blessing that comes from, from giving when it's done with joyful, 
integrity and gospel centrality. And they, they robbed the church of the resources that it needed to care for the people that were in the life of the church. I'm sure the apostles did a budget. And they were like, yeah, we have all these needs. But yeah, and Sapphira is selling the field for this much. Great, we can cover that with that. And they're really trying to care for things in a wise manner, I'm sure. Well, apparently God takes this really seriously. Look at verse 5 and 6. And Ananias heard these words. He fell down and he breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it, you think? <laughs> and the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. That's kind of dirty deacon work in the early church, right? I wonder if, like, was he standing on plastic, you know? Like, how did that, how did that all happen? You know, here he comes in, and the guys wrap him up, and they carry him out, and they bury him. I mean, that sounds pretty bleak. You might be asking yourself, why does God take this so seriously? I mean, is, is God that desperate for money to take care of his people? Is God that insecure about finding the money he needs to take care of his people that are in need? Like, why, why is this happening? Well, of course not. God takes it so seriously because the genuine progress of the gospel through Christian generosity can be hindered through ingenuine professing Christians. Like when we're disingenuine with God and with ourselves and with each other, that can thwart the work of God in the life of the church. Up till this point, the, the church is growing and it's thriving and there's these kind of outside pressures that are trying to fracture the church. And here we see the first internal pressure that comes to fracture the church, to stop it from the, the progress that it's, it's making. And, and, and the first example we have is, is some disingenuine kinds of behavior surrounding generosity. says the death of Ananias caused great fear to come upon all who heard it. You wondering why? Like why? Okay, well, a guy just fell down dead for no reason. So like you'd be afraid of that, right? But like why else? Why, why, why did this circumstance cause, cause great fear? I think the only reason that great fear could come upon everyone who knew about this in the church, I think the only reason could be because they all know, listen to me, we all have a proclivity to do the same thing. I think great fear came upon them because they're like, that, that could have been me. That totally could have been me. Like we all have the proclivity to, to make ourselves look better than we are in all kinds of things in life. And especially with these kinds of things, we, we all have the proclivity to make ourselves look more generous than we really are. And I, and I think everyone in the church was like, gosh, that could have been me. To be genuine gospel generosity, both our motivations and our actions have to be genuine. You might say, well, how do I do that? I don't feel like sometimes, I don't know, like, I don't know, do we do anything with a completely genuine motivation? Like, how does that, how does that work? How can I attain to that? And then the question is, ultimately, I'm not, I'm not sure you can, but I know someone who did. God gave himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus came and, and he lived the most generous life anyone could ever live. Not just with his resources. I mean, it, it said that resources came in, but it also tells us that the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. That like whatever came in, Jesus distributed out to his disciples for their needs and the needs of others. I mean, Jesus was probably... the this makes sense. The most generous person that ever lived. Like with what he had, with the resources that he had but ultimately generously gave his life for us, generously left heaven and the comforts of heaven, right, to come to earth, 
to live a sinless life on our behalf, to generously give his life, as we sang about. No one, Rock of Ages, no one takes your life, but, but, but he gave his life freely as our substitute on the cross, dying on the cross and in our place and for our sins, and then raising to give us a life that we could have, never have otherwise, a life that's transformed by the realities of the gospel, which affects all kinds of areas of our lives, including our generosity. And I think this is connected to our good news this morning as a church. And if you're new with us at the village, we, we like to give news, good news to you every morning. We just, we just believe that Jesus Christ is good. And so we're trying to connect the truth of the gospel and the reality of this passage and the realities of your life together. We're trying to bridge them with this thing we call our good news statement. I believe this morning it's this, that God generously and genuinely gave himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. So we can give generously and generously to his people, just like Jesus. We usually end our sermons with, um, with this good news statement, but this morning I want to end with a word to heads of households. I am a head of my household I, as a husband in my home, um, and I've wrestled with these things myself. I mean, this is sobering stuff a little bit, right? If you're a head of household, you, you might be the, the husband uh, in, in, a, in a family where you don't yet have kids, or you're a husband in a family where you do have kids, and you're, you're the head of your household. God kind of has given you that, that place in your home. For some of you, you're single adults, and right now you're the head of your household. For some of you, you're, you're a single mom, and, and for now you're kind of the head of your household, and, and we would want to be here to support you, but th for this morning that, that, that would be you, right? And if you're the head of your household, I just have a a word for head of households. I've been thinking about this myself this week as the head of my household. Right? It can be easy to think that we can be less than honest with God and ourselves and it won't really impact those around us or even those closest to us. Right? That no one will really know. But that's not what we see happening here. Right? What we see happening here in verse 7 is pretty... Pretty staggering. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in. Where have you been, honey? <laughs> Not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yeah, for so much. Apparently, they had already made an agreement with their elders. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord, to test the spirit of God? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The decisions that we make as heads of our households, even and especially around our financial decisions, and decisions about our generosity have a greater impact than we might think. In the beginning of this passage, it tells us that, that Ananias kept back part of the proceeds for himself. But he agreed together with his wife. And in that culture, the wife pretty much just agreed together with the husband. Right? That's just the way it was. And here's Ananias leading his family in this way. And it had a pretty devastating impact. And where I want to leave us this morning is that it says that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. And it says that twice in this passage. 
when it happened to Ananias, it said great fear came upon them. And when it happened to Sapphira, it says great fear that came upon them. And, you know, the Bible doesn't have a way of, like, underlining or highlighting, right? I mean, this is its way. And so I'm, 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 I'm ending here this morning because I think this is part of where the emphasis is in the Bible this morning is when the Bible mentions something a couple times, it, it does it because it's trying to underline it. It's trying to highlight it for us. It's trying to, to focus our attention on this. And so, so as we end, I, I want to focus our attention on this in Proverbs 14, 27, where it says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. And, and so as, as gospel-centered people, we want to be a church that always celebrates the realities of the gospel and, and really has a joyful sort of disposition and, and, and a joyful sort of a approach to the, the scriptures as we open them because, um, well, Jesus has done wonderful things for us and there's redemption and there's forgiveness and there's freedom and all of those things. We want to delight in Jesus together. And the reality is that part of that is, is these sobering moments where, where we see the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. And that when we're, when we're in these moments where we just have to be confronted with, with the fear of the Lord, that is the fountain of life. And as we go through this series, Church Alive, I want to tell you that one of the reasons we are, one of the ways that we are alive at the church is, is that we walk in the fear of the Lord. And so I want to encourage you to walk in the fear of the Lord. I need to walk in the fear of the Lord in these things. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do um, walk in the fear of you because we, we revere you. Because we honor you. Because we respect you. Because we're in awe of you and who you are and what you've done for us. And so we walk in the fear of the Lord you deserve our reverence, and we give it to you this morning. We thank you for being so generous to us, Father, and giving your son. Jesus, we thank you for generously laying your life down for us. Holy Spirit, we thank you for being so generous to constantly remind us of these things. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.